0: The
1: Guardian. Guardian Holiday Offers is pleased to bring you a great selection of worldwide trips from our trusted partners. From cultural tours and adventure holidays to river cruises and cottage breaks, we have something for everyone. To find your perfect break, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us. That's guardian.co.uk forward slash travel with us.
2: Hello, I'm John Plunkett, and on this week's Media Talk... There is no doubt
1: that it is a matter of regret and embarrassment that the version of events that were recorded in Peter Rippon's blog on the 2nd of October did not turn out to be as accurate as they
2: should have been. We look at all the latest developments in the Jimmy Savile scandal, plus allegations of phone hacking at the Daily Mirror, and the latest radio listening figures are out. Good news for the Today programme, not so good for Chris Moyles. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And I'm joined this week by Maggie Brown, an all-round media columnist and media talk regular, and Mr. Dan Sabo, who's the Guardian's head of media and tech. Maggie, you've just come back from Ohio, I believe. I have
3: indeed. I've been in the swing state and I've been watching or at least trying not to watch too much uh, television because $2.5 billion in political advertising is being thrown at American voters at the moment. But the other interesting side to this is that um, in the new season of television programming, uh, NBC has come out on top in its appeal to 19 to 49-year-olds. And I have here a dire warning for British viewers. Uh Uh-oh. Part of that is due to having a second series of... The Voice.
2: The Voice. Everyone's (laughs) favourite. On Monday Monday
3: nights. And it's killing the opposition. I'll tell you something else. I mean, in the light of Mark Thompson about to take control of the New York Times, I mean, that paper just continues to shine in terms of journalistic uh, expertise and breadth of, of writing.
2: But you had to go down to your local corner shop to buy it, is that they right They don't, oh
3: yeah, exactly. Every, every morning I trotted off down to the um, supermarket in Cleveland Heights called Dave's, very appropriately. And uh, I picked up, they, they sold about three papers, that's, that's all you get really, the Wall Street Journal, New York Times and the Plains Dealer, which is the, the local, quite good paper actually.
2: Big, well, big shout out to Dave, so I think Media Talk listeners get a free, uh, what would you get? In Ohio, what would be free? I was going to say beef jerky, but I'm probably geographically way off there. Well, Oof.
3: maple syrup maybe. Maple syrup. That's Let's not up. win
4: any new friends. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. Well, moving on swiftly. We start this week with the the Jimmy Savile saga. Damn, where to begin? Probably with the latest.
4: I think we're still reading from the fallout of George Entwistle's uh, best so so, and I think more realistically unconvincing performance before the Select Committee on Tuesday. Lord Patton's sort of out, finally sort of taken to the airwaves to try and defend him. He's popping up on the World at 1 on Thursday. And, uh, uh, you know, saying it's terribly bad luck that Entwistle has sort of been hit by this tsunami of filth just 11 or days into getting the job. I think the trouble with that sort of phraseology is Lord Patton sounds like he's almost enjoying it, I think, Uh, you know, trying to find these sort of grandiloquent phrases to sort of go with uh, what is a sort of very, you know, a a serious crisis and one that George Edwistle couldn't, couldn't allay. And I think there's a dangerous situation looming for the BBC. You know, Maria Miller's come in and quite rightly, in my view, sort of just fired a shot across the BBC's bows and expressed concern that George Ettenwell's performance wasn't reassuring enough. Um, I don't think you'll find much disagreement in the Labour Party either. The corporation's a bit short of political friends and it's making very heavy weather of this situation, and the public are really exercised about it.
2: Maggie, the, the week started badly for the BBC and George Entwistle and it, it got w- with Panorama and then it got a lot, lot worse on the Tuesday.
3: Well, I got off the uh, the plane red-eyed and, and watched the uh, Culture Media Sports performance and with growing dismay and it kind of reflected what we've said here before in Media Talk that there wasn't really an, a standout candidate to be Director-General of the BBC, just reprising some of the discussions we've had over the past few months and what came across was that Entwistle is not Uh, a good or confident uh, uh, public performer. And he didn't seem particularly to be on top of issues either. So I I am with Dan over Maria Miller, the Culture Secretary, coming in and just giving a bit of a public warning, because she's not saying we in the government are trying to sort of edit the BBC, but we are concerned about the way it's actually being governed and run, and this is public money. And so as far as uh, that part of the, the week's development goes, you know, so far so good. I'm, I'm also, to be honest with you, I was watching this all develop in particular last week in America. And it it is just pretty extraordinary because there is one very big problem, which is the Jimmy Savile affair, uh, which is a huge public, almost tabloid issue. And it goes back far into BBC culture and to light entertainment and, of course, the protection and the corruption of children and minors. But the other side of it is how the BBC itself handles an enormous crisis and they seem to have made it worse rather than better by this extraordinarily slow uh, reaction to a number of issues including what Newsnight uh, was really supposed to be investigating the role of the editor, the the splits between the the journalists making the programme and and the editor, the fact a blog was issued. Now this really seems odd to me on October the 2nd now when you think about it we're told that the blog was actually not just a personal expression by the Editor Peter Rippon of Newsnight. It was also the BBC statement, which then, of course, turned out to be untrue about why the programme had been stopped. Whenever
1: the BBC puts something into the public domain, it has an obligation, an ongoing obligation, to ensure the accuracy of, what, of, of that thing, of whatever it is put out there. So yeah. I think we were. There's no question in my mind that we were right to change to change the blog to to uh, identify the inaccuracies in the blog. It seems to me absolutely the right thing to have done. I think. The fact of last night's panorama is something everybody in the BBC should be incredibly proud of. Here is an organisation investigating itself in its own airtime on its main TV channel with appropriate resources given to the task and asking questions of itself that I don't believe any other media organisation on earth would do. The BBC's capacity to interrogate its own corporate situation, its own corporate priorities, its own corporate handling of things is unmatched in the world, and and rather than regarding last night's panorama as, as, as a symptom of chaos, I regard last night's panorama as a symptom of the fundamental health of the independence of BBC journalism.
2: That was George Entwistle giving evidence to MPs on the House of Commons Culture Select Committee earlier this week. Dan, looking back on Entwistle's performance, it was uh, unconvincing to say the least. Uh, I mean, what what could he have done differently? He came across as a man who you know, wasn't really in control of the facts. He sort of fumbled around for figures when MPs quizzed him and quizzed him and quizzed him. And there was one particularly embarrassing bit where, uh, uh, well, I mean, the, the audience sort of burst into laughter prompted by one of the MPs when he suggested to um, Entwistle that, you know, have you got any other questions you haven't thought about asking that we're going to help you with?
4: Well... Look, quite so. He's desperately unlucky that this happened so soon after he got the job. But unfortunately, you know, when you're director general from day one, you're the boss, and that's that. I think it shows you very quickly how how the BBC is missing Mark Thompson. Uh, the most, you know, one of Thompson's most important qualities is that robustness or resilience that he had, intellectual resilience, you know, an all round robustness. And then just didn't quite have the sort of ability to kind of hold the committee off intellectually. Philip Davis roughed him up quite early on and he got in terrible trouble because... Philip Davies is a sort of rottweiler for Tory MP, always looking for the weak spot. Asks him how many sort of instances of harassment I think there are against, I mean, BBC staff that he was aware of. And George had some number, but he couldn't remember what it was. It was between five and ten, then between eight, eight and ten. You know, he hadn't asked the statistical question and it all just sounded awful. And eventually they came up, with well, the BBC came up with figure sort of nine complaints against current staff of harassment and abuse and inappropriate behaviour. But that had to be after the meeting. And then after that, Ben Bradshaw just demolished him and just sort of started talking about, you know, were you right to defend Peter Ripon or not? And and Entwistle, who had only two weeks earlier on the Today programme, quite staunchly defended Peter said, I'm not going to sort of judge him with the benefit of hindsight, you know, really sort of, you know, in effect saying if the editor made a mistake, I respect his right to make a mistake and I'm not going to hang him for it. And then two weeks later, he's sort of saying, look, he shouldn't have stopped that investigation when he did. He, you know, I, I, I can't really understand the decision. The blog he wrote should have been accurate. And in every possible way, he dumped on him. And that is just, you know, such a sort of big movement in position. And Frank, I mean, you know, not really very smart, and I think not, you know, not very edifying. If you're sitting there in the BBC and going, my God, if I've got a fifty-fifty editorial decision, you know, what's going to happen? You know, if I get into trouble, and what's the DG going to do to me?
3: Yes,
2: Maggie, there is that suggestion of a bit of a backlash now from within the BBC, people who are looking at Ripon.
3: There is a backlash, and you can understand it because the journalists themselves are doing a very good job. It was, after all, journalistic enterprise at the BBC on the Newsnight team that actually brought this story into a near-broadcast form. Now, perhaps it needed more investigation, who knows, before the BBC could have confidently run with it. But again, we had on Monday night an excellent panorama programme pulled together using much of the material. And there have been, since the crisis broke... There have been a number of both Newsnight discussions, indeed there was one on Monday night, and there have been other Newsnight items about it. And the BBC itself, in news terms, um, has, I think, done a very sound job, and indeed the media show has as well. So the journalists, to some extent, are... I think, carrying on, as you might expect, they they are being journalists. But what has actually happened is that the management structure, the news management structure in particular, has been shown to be woefully lacking. Whether or not Peter Rippon was weak, or whether he was asked to, to drop this, we still don't really know. We also know that there have been now almost parallel set-up creative within news. Because the Director General, George Entwistle, is slightly involved, he has had to recuse himself from certain decisions. You've got the head of the World Service coming in, you've got Fran Unsworth taking over in these particular areas, and you've got Tim Davey acting as uh, director-general in this particular area. So
2: And Adrian Van Cleveren's become involved as well, we hear today. Oh, has he? I didn't yeah. know that.
3: I mean, it is pretty extraordinary to have a whole set of very senior people, as it were, temporarily sort of sidelined, while another set with apparently clean hands get on with it. It's a bit like what happened actually after Hutton, I heard what Victoria Derbyshire on Radio 5 Live had to say about the, the problem. And I don't think it is an attack on journalists at all. But, but there is a big question mark over the whole editorial decision-making process.
2: Well, we've got one DG in the spotlight in, in Entwistle, but also, Dan, another DG in the shape of Mark Thompson, who's been... Uh Well, he's very much involved in this now, or certainly faces uh, searching questions about it, at least.
4: All this is not helped by the fact that he's just about to become CEO of the New York Times, which will no doubt have to investigate him ceaselessly and endlessly. I mean, Mark's given, in my view, a fairly consistent account, which is that he knew pretty much nothing he went to a drinks party and to uh, BBC World Journalist Caroline Hawley mentioned you must be really worried about Newsnight Saville investigation and you know, he thought oh, oh, this is interesting enough and he made some inquiries. and he told The Guardian uh, earlier this week that uh, it was Helen Bowden who came back and said, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Newsnight was looking at something and it's not come come to pass. And so as far as he was concerned, that was that. And he missed all the sort of press coverage in January and February. And, uh, you know, now we fastened. And he first learned about it when we all did, perhaps, um, uh, when the ITV, when the pre-publicity for the ITV film emerged. That's his story. He sort of told sm- ever so slightly different versions of it, about three times, but I think essentially the same version. And the question then becomes, well, do you believe that he wasn't told? And I think Mark's point is, look, you know, the BBC is a huge organisation. Editorial matters do not get referred to the DG, except very exceptionally like with sort of Panorama and FIFA where you need the full weight of the DG to sort of back up the corporation's journalism. and
3: you are sort of back in the George Entwistle uh, area where you, you might just ask another question. I agree that you're the Director-General, but given that Jimmy Savile is, or was at that point, um, still going to be the subject of two specials over Christmas and and he was still in the saintly side of the ledger then again it comes back to really what you think you need to know or should know as director general and maybe what you say is correct that you have to be a politician to be at the top of the BBC and you just don't want to actually have to be held responsible for things that you I know are going to blow up in your face. One of the things I, I found so strange listening to this on Tuesday morning, I had to sort of shake my head with disbelief, was that the conversation between Bowden, this 10 second conversation between Bowdoin and Entwistle, took place in at, on December the 2nd at the Women in Film and Television Awards, which is a very boozy lunch. It's held in Partner. A busy lunch I think Boozy as well, as well. <laughs> Yes and Busy uh, lunch
4: is George Entwistle's phrase Before the Select Committee but Exactly
3: anyway. yes And also I mean it is a place where people gossip And it's a Friday night Friday afternoon It's kind of It starts at 12 ends at 5 then you go home, I imagine. So it seemed to me such an inappropriate place. And also you you might not remember what you've been told. I mean, I just thought, the whole I, I, I almost thought I don't believe this because here are two very senior people at the top of the BBC. They're actually working from the same building most of the time. Why on earth do you have that kind of little conversation in that kind of venue?
2: That's one of the key questions that needs answering, isn't it, Dan? Well, why, why didn't that conversation last longer? Why wasn't, um, well, he, he's given his side of the story to MPs, but why wasn't Emerson more curious about, you know, what Newsnight might have to say? He said, uh, well, when I didn't hear back from Helen, I assumed it had been dropped. Well, you know, that's a hell of an assumption. But what are the key questions that need answering? Uh, another one springs to mind is, you know, why did Peter Rippon drop the report? That's the first one. And he'll, he'll have his say to, to the Pollard Review.
4: He, he certainly will. I think, I think one of the things that's happened is that actually a, a reverse. we need to reverse our thinking on this. And I think for a long time, the, the, sort of the, the initial assumption of Journalist Inquiry, the initial story was that the, the boss class squashed this Newsnight investigation because it was inconvenient to sort of air this sort of dirty linen about uh, these horrible stories about Jimmy Savile maybe ahead of the Tribute and so on and actually, I mean if that's a scandal I mean that seems like a pretty thin basis for a scandal, I mean it's, you know, no one's motivated by money or anything like that. Actually we should be asking the, rever- the reverse question which is that in the light of what had been discovered by the programme, why on earth wasn't either the journalistic investigation proceeded with or why on earth was it not felt necessary to sort of share some of the information this interview with karen ward who hadn't gone to the police why what why shouldn't this why wasn't this shared with the police and it's actually it's quite an unusual sort of Journalistic situation because normally, you know, attention you know, in investigative journalism, there's always that sort of tension if you're really investigating, I don't know, serious crime. You know, what point do you go to the cops and crudely before you go to air afterwards? it's a dilemma they had, I think, the BBC when they investigated the Winterbourne Care Home. But in this instance, it's very unusual because you'd sort of got some information, but you'd felt it wasn't good enough to air, you know. So then what do you do? Is it a journalistic source material and you hold it up close, or do you actually treat it as sort of, uh, you know, potentially useful evidence? They sort of got in a mess on their mindset about that. This is sort of all the way through it as a piece of journalism and we must get it to air or not. Nobody kind of thought about the bigger picture of what's the value of this, let never mind what's the true value of the story.
2: All right, well thanks very much. All the latest on the Jimmy Savile scandal of course at uh, mediaguardian.co.uk. Also in the news this week, uh, we've had allegations of phone hacking at the Daily Mirror. And, Dan, these are the first uh, legal complaints made against a, a non-Murdoch newspaper in relation to phone hacking.
4: I think in any other week this would have been a huge story, and we'd have just talked about it for 25 minutes. Um, uh, look, it's still it's still highly significant. Four lawsuits um, alleging phone hacking uh, brought by Sven and Eriksson, amongst others, against various Mirror Group titles, uh, actually all three, Mirror, Mirror Sunday, Mirror people, and you know we'll have to see how these proceed. It's a, it's a very interesting dynamic They're brought by Mark Lewis, uh, the lawyer behind the original Gordon Taylor battle that eventually led to the undoing of the the News of the World and, and so many other things. You know the hard part I think is that uh, is how they can pre- proceed evidentially because you know clearly uh, in the News of the World case, as Glenn Mulcair had been arrested, he'd gone to jail, he'd all his notebooks had been seized and all his paperwork. So you had a very sort of hard core of evidence to go on and you don't have at least to the best of our knowledge uh, you don't have a hard core of evidence that's of that of that quality so i think it's gonna be you know a very interesting moment i'm sure that the mirror group will defend itself uh, vigorously or seek to but interesting response from simon fox the new chief executive who's uh, you know one of his sort of internal emails to staff emails that he writes sort of i think on the one hand, rueing how much coverage this had got, although I think that's a wee bit naive of him, to be honest, and on the other hand, saying it will be irresponsible not to look into these things quickly, and and, and he's absolutely right to do that. He's got nothing to hide. And perhaps he'll do that investigation, that backwards-looking investigation of journalistic practices that Sly Bailey completely refused to do. And I think for a public company, uh, Sly Bailey's position was a bit hard to, well, for any company, but particularly for a public company, Sly Bailey's position was hard to defend.
2: Maggie the Sven Göran Eriksson allegations uh, relate to the time uh, when Piers Morgan was in charge of the Mirror yes, and uh, you know P- Piers Morgan and, and, and phone hacking you know they they've been in the spotlight before if I can put it that way not least uh, Jeremy Paxman's evidence to the uh, Leveson inquiry
3: indeed and uh, indeed in his own diaries as well so there's a corporate um, side to this too I and mean, the share price has dropped and the company itself is is not in the most healthy of of positions so I hope all three titles are going to survive I hope we're not in a sort of news of the world rerun situation but um, uh, it does not look good for them.
2: Okay well also this week we had the latest Rajar figures uh, and I, I won't be reprising my Alan Freeman impression due to uh, public demand but Maggie, it was good news for the Today programme, but bad news for Chris Moyles. His last ever breakfast show ended up with the, well, is it actually his lowest audience for for yes. six years. And six
3: point seven three million to six point nine four for the Today programme. My heart's of sword. He was I saw beaten
2: that. by Humphreys and Co. Yeah,
3: indeed, a marvellous. Welcomed of in the in the Brown Welcome. household. Uh, certainly, certainly welcomed in the Brown household. Um, he was never
2: any good for news and current affairs, was he?
3: Well, I mean, you know, it was a sort of one-man ramble, wasn't it, really? I mean, Ben Cooper's obviously done the right thing. Uh, he has the Radio 1 controller. The Radio 1 controller. I mean, Radio 1 has to go through these great shifts so that they can somehow refresh themselves and and, and start to attract younger people, cool, younger listeners in this case. So um, I wish him well. Uh, I, I was also really interested to see that um, there are some very strong figures from some of the digital uh, radio channels at the BBC, and uh, of course, Chris Evans continues in a very sort of unruffled. He's he's in a mellow spot, I think.
2: As we all are, I hope. Uh, yeah, Dan. Well, Maggie mentioned the digital figures there. I mean, six music was up thirty seven percent year on year. If I can get anaraki for a second, uh, one point six million listeners. The, the the station they tried to axe.
4: Good for them. I think what's interesting is there's a sort of I think there's a sort of underlying suggestion. I think Ofcom's got some data on this that, that younger people are you know switching off radio to a degree i mean still a big i wouldn't mind chris malls's audience i'm sure media talk would could just about live off it yeah. but, but uh, there i think there is some you know there's some evidence that younger people are sort of tuning out of radio if you like uh maybe it's because you know you can get listen to what you like you can build your own spotify playlists have them on your mobile in the way on the way to work or or you know number or the it's uh, just the greater choice and technology in the air and i think uh meanwhile uh, you know the sort of, you know, radio is a bit, perhaps, sort of a gently, gracefully aging medium, and I think you know, you know, Radio Four is a sort of as popular, if not more popular, with the British middle class. Maggie's touched on, on Radio Two as well, but you know, Radio One I think faces some interesting challenges, and clearly one would expect that Radio One number to go down because you know Chris Moyles. You know, like him or not, he had no shortage of fans too. Uh, they've got to go through that transition as well, and not everyone's going to be ready to stick with the new guy. So, uh, an interesting. No, it's not a problem for Radio One, but an interesting time looms for Radio One as it reassert, tries to reassert its relevance.
2: And finally, this week, Jeff Ford said farewell to Channel Five, Maggie, or at least he'll be leaving in December. He's a man you very much associate with the station. Been there more than ten years, with a, with a brief, uh, brief well, yes. Well, break he, was to there, 4. he was
3: there. He was at the, the launch, and then he went to Channel Four. And he's a great. as we remember we we'll remember him for his great acquisitions. I mean, he's the man who really uh, could go to Hollywood and come back with with, with the plums. Uh, well, I, I was surprised because having seen him uh, performing so sort of effortlessly at the Edinburgh Television Festival, and seemed seemingly so happy in his skin as the director of programs at Channel 5 I thought well maybe he's found a modus vivendi with uh, Richard Desmond and his crew and he even said and I think you you may have reported it as a monkey that um, you know if, if you opened him up he would find Channel 5 carved on his heart but I think looking back on it now I, I before I came here I turned up Um, a diary he wrote for the Royal Television Society's television magazine. And in it, uh, it was just before the launch of Celebrity Big Brother for the first time on Channel 5. And it was studied, this diary, with reports that he was being called all the time to find out who were his celebrities and who who had they already booked for the show by other people in the organisation. And I suspect that just the, the claustrophobic, micromanagement, money-conscious side of the organisation has got to him.
2: Yes, Dan, I mean, unlike many other staff at Channel 5, Jeff Ford hung around after it was bought by Richard Desmond two years ago, but he, he never made any secret of um, the amount, of, as Maggie intimated there, never made any secret of the sort of number of meetings he had with Desmond every week, and, uh, you know, they, they did go on a bit.
4: Well, Richard is the owner. He's got a right yeah. to be interested. Uh, uh, so you know whether you like him, whether you like him or not. Look, what's interesting is Richard's bought Channel Five. It's not sort of fallen to pieces. On the other hand, it's not done anything massively inspiring. I mean, Big Brother was an obvious bet for them. Uh, I think it's happier than it was on Channel Four, but you know it's not really sort of transformed anything. I mean, they bought Dallas. It made a bit of noise and. Phew, so what, you know, I think what would be interesting is can the sort of Desmond team, do they have the skills to really run a broadcaster themselves? I think that's not proven. Can they bring in people who, who do? I think that's a little bit on the unlikely side at the moment. And I suppose the other question is sort of will it, will it matter? And I think, you know, the acid test for them is sort of in, you know, in three or five years' time, have they made much difference to share? Are they actually any good managers of media assets? And I think, well, you know, Jeff's departure makes that a little bit more challenging for them.
2: Dan, Maggie, thanks very much. Well, Dan's gone back to the coalface, but in his chair almost seamlessly is the Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost. Hey, How are you doing, Vicky?
0: I'm all right, thank you. I
2: see, you have a listings magazine in front of you.
0: I do. Yeah, you must be here to talk TV. <laughs> How right.
2: So, uh, well, what should we talk about this week? A homeland. Should we start with Homeland?
0: Let's start with Homeland. Or Carry On
2: Homeland, as we now call it, <laughs> in the Plunkett household.
0: Yes. Uh, last week's episode was uh, utterly, madly, crazily ridiculous. I think. Oh, I don't think the series started brilliantly. I thought the second episode was a bit better, although I know lots of other people had problems with it and sort of said oh, it was totally ludicrous. But I thought the second episode was no more ludicrous than the end of the first series. If I'm honest, uh, so I did a lot of defending of Homeland, people saying it's not that ridiculous. It's only as ridiculous as it's ever been. Uh, so I did that, and then of course last Sunday's episode was absolutely the most. It was shonky. It was ludicrous, ridiculous.
2: Especially, I think, when uh, our hero, Nicholas Brody ran into the woods, uh, was trying to get the guy to shut up. His wife rang, he took the call, accidentally killed the bloke, ran back and then sort of washed himself off in a a giant car wash. The car
0: wash, the car wash. I wanted the music to
2: kick in. It
0: was was sort of, I, I kind of couldn't get my head around it. The whole idea that he'd just casually break some guy's neck while he's on the phone to his wife and he'd take that call. You wouldn't think, oh, I'm a bit busy now killing someone tell you what I'll call you back in a minute you know it didn't make any sense whatsoever and then the car washing was just utterly bizarre it was kind of like well we know this this episode is completely mad so let's just really you know do something crazy at the end of it so uh yes Obviously, episode three went very wrong. Episode four, this Sunday, which I've seen, I'm pleased to say, really does start to get it back on track. And I'm pleased to say because I couldn't take many more episodes like the last one. So maybe that will sort of go some way towards... Uh, kind of bringing things back I mean I'm not sure that I think the second series is as good as the first but nothing can be as bad as that third episode I think.
2: And frankly you worry for the third series now which has been commissioned.
0: Yeah I think this is true I mean basically you started with what was a very well formed one series uh, show with a a story arc that fitted into one series very interestingly and clearly should have ended a slightly different way And now it's going to be carried on until, well, for as long as they can. Yeah, exactly. And it will carry on for as long as they possibly can, I think. And I, I think the story is under some stress already, and I can't imagine how it will continue
3: for another sort of three or four series after that.
2: Maggie, you are in the States, you didn't watch series, you didn't see the latest Home Name, but you, did you watch series one?
3: Oh yes, I watched series one and I started watching, I've got it on my hard disk at home and I, of course I...
2: Maybe you won't bother watching episode three now, you've heard us talking
3: about it. <laughs> no, I think, well I mean, you have to, otherwise you kind of, you know, you, you've lost out. What, what, Sorry about watch...
2: the car wash spoiler.
3: Well yes, I, I'm a little bit upset about that, but I, but I can live with it, I think. The real problem I, I found actually watching the first episode, was that I think I'd had such high expectations. And I think that's what we're all really saying, that it ended in such a curious way. And, I mean, surely, Vicky, you're not suggesting he should have blown himself up and just finished off the whole thing at well, the end. I am of really I mean yes, yes, I know that so makes no commercial sense
0: whatsoever for a broadcaster no commercial broadcaster going to say yeah let's do that it's great it's brilliant it's done really well let's finish it uh, but that's the problem isn't it that actually I think it would have been uh, more satisfactory as a piece of drama if that was the case
3: well, I mean, what I, I found in the States was that everybody's just waiting for the next series of uh, Downton Abbey. To be absolutely honest with you, I mean, in uh, I mean, it starts in January, and they are all literally just um, you know waiting. Uh, they, and uh, in fact, I, I'm a kind of mini celebrity because I happen to have gone to Highclere Castle, and I've met Julian Fellows You know, and this is sort of like a, a dinner party. You, know? you I had no idea. Yes, I mean, they they all absolutely <laughs> adore. They 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 absolutely adore Downton Abbey. Uh, it, it, well, in the bit of a America that that I know, which I suppose is sort of um, which is the bigger nonsense,
2: homeland or downtown? Yeah. <laughs>
3: downtown, I think. Oh. Oh. But I think it says
0: something interesting, doesn't it, about import telly? I mean, I think you, we are perhaps always easier on things that we don't produce, whether that's kind of European telly or American telly, and vice versa. I think you know, home and kind away, kind of thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've never seen home and away. Oh. Yeah, hmm.
2: we well, can borrow my box set. <laughs> what else should be watching this week?
0: Uh, elementary. So Sherlock, uh, of course, huge success in the UK. And then Elementary is on Sky Living and it's a US import. It is basically a modern day Sherlock Holmes, but not the modern day Sherlock Holmes, if you know what I mean. It's not Sherlock, although it kind of is. It's sort of a, it's an interesting thing. It's got Johnny Lee Miller as um, Sherlock, who I think is great. Gorgeous. Actually. Yeah, gorgeous and great. It's got Lucy Liu as Joan Watson. And so, both of them are gorgeous and great actors. I love them both on screen and it's the thing is it's a perfectly interesting thing, although it's not it's not sherlock that's the thing it's kind of like a step up from c s i rather than a really lovely thing you want to cherish forever so thirteen parter they solve lots of mysteries in them. Um, and they're totally fine, and I'll probably keep watching. But you can't help, I think, while you're watching it, just thinking, oh, but this isn't Sherlock. How well would Cumberbatch have done that bit of uh, dialogue there? And how, how great is that chemistry between Martin Freeman and Cumberbatch? And that's, like, wit, and it's all a bit better basically
2: and how good would the BBC One Sherlock have been if they had to make 13 episodes it shows the, the different way we still approach TV drama over here and in the US yeah
0: exactly exactly. and of course you know the, the BBC Sherlock's are also longer obviously you take that into account but equally I do think it, it sort of shows how good Cumberbatch's uh, performance is actually in that role
2: he's the governor
3: he is yeah yeah
2: so, Maggie, you were in Ohio, so you didn't watch Elementary, I guess. But what, what was on the small screen well, over there? I
3: had, I had the misfortune to tune into the Jerry Springer show uh, one sort of afternoon. Is he still and on? He still, not only is he still on, it was just unbelievable. Uh, it was a woman who claimed that her husband had slept with a prostitute. Prostitute comes on. They then have a cat fight when the husband appears. The prostitute then reveals that actually it was a three-in-a-bed. Uh, she then attempts to snog the startled wife. The guards have to step in while a second catfight takes place, and it's all kind of tea-time telly. I, I, I mean, I, I was I was genuinely quite amazed. I was riveted, and I, I sat there and I thought this would never be showed on British television, and certainly not at four o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, it's so undignified, isn't it? God, it just sort of, it makes my heart sink terribly, really. But I mean, that's American television. And I mean, it is unwatchable at the moment, because I, I, so much uh, political advertising, and so many commercial breaks. And also, it's not just campaigns for the presidency. If, if, remember, these are Senate elections as well. And uh, also going on, not so much on screen, but there are other elections for things like high court judges in, in the States. So it's just a sort of a, ma- a maniacal time.
2: The Jerry Springer plot sounds more complicated than uh, Sherlock. Uh, anything Sherlock had to face. <laughs> uh, unravel that one. Well, uh,
3: what I do
0: think is interesting, though, and to sort of I think talking in the idea of sort of civilised TV, what I have really liked to see the return to screen of is Graham Norton's show. Um, he's back on Friday nights. And I just think he is so charming and his show... Is so well done. And it's just everybody on it talks to everybody else. Um, I don't know if you saw he had Arnie on. Uh, oh,
2: I did. I'm keen to interrupt. I'm not going to.
0: Oh, no, do interrupt. Oh, go on. Well,
2: if you let me, is that interrupting? But I'm going to anyway, yeah. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Graham Norton, but That's I thought it. the first series was a real flop. Yeah, for some reason, the chemistry didn't work. I don't know. It just all kind of felt a bit uncomfortable. And, and why was Ronnie Corbett there, apart from him for his for the height gag?
0: Uh, no, I'm not sure I entirely agree with you, actually. I think Arnie was a bit uncomfortable because he didn't know what on earth was going on. But I found that quite amusing, to be honest, when you get that situation. And I thought Miranda and Ronnie Corbett together were fantastic. I loved all that. And they were very funny. And she was very funny, actually. I kind of... Sometimes I forget that she is really very funny as well as very slapstick and kind of, you know, she was just... I thought she was really great, actually.
2: Well, we'll return to this with a... This Friday's episode is a Jane Swan special, isn't it, I think? So yes, right? that's right, yeah. I have higher hopes. Uh, even higher than Ronnie Corbett. Well, if Graham Norton can do it, you know, certainly Media Talk can if I can do that. Right, it's time for the uh, Maggie's favourite part of the show. She's, I think she's forgotten about it because of her jet lag. It's the Media Monkey quiz. Yep, yep, the the, the grin remains fixed. Right, uh, question number one. Uh, which star reporters quit the Daily Planet? Anyone? Nope, take that as a score draw or no score draw. A Superman alter ego Clark Kent.
0: Oh, quit so his job he's oh, well, like going to be a blogger isn't now it you Sorry. Tell me. Yeah. now you he- he's going to be a blogger
3: yeah, it was on the today was program wasn't
2: it well, it may it well have been Maggie it's <laughs> now it's been on media talk uh, yes uh, just to explain uh, yeah Clark Kent was unhappy that uh, facts have been replaced by opinions and information has been replaced by entertainment plus they got rid of the cartoons uh, ok question number two it's because he is a cartoon uh, fill the gap question number two how did <laughs> how did Comrade Black describe Ca- Sky News's Adam Bolton on Tuesday
0: Oh, oh, it was brilliant. Oh, what was the word? he? Used? It was an
2: MTV show in which they used to do pranks. That's a oh, clue. a jackass.
0: Yes. A jackass. Oh, he's just I just loved all of this. The Sunday Times interview with him with Conrad Black was just it was a brilliant bit of writing, brilliant bit of interviewing. And he is just barking. It was fantastic. Fantastic. I've loved him coming back. He's great value, I think.
2: And he's on Have I Got News For You uh, on uh, Friday.
0: Yes, I can't imagine how that's going to go. <laughs>
2: and question number three. Maggie, That you need this to, to, to pull level. Uh, and it's, it's a very clever question. I'm very proud. Uh, which 76-year-old long-running TV serial came to an end this week? Yeah, it's so clever. No one knows the answer. Yeah, you can make these questions too uh, cryptic. Uh, Analog TV
0: of course
3: yeah of yeah. course 76 years yes
0: you're oh, right yeah. yes. oh CFAX it's like the story yeah. that never ends I feel like I've been reading the CFAX Fax goes offline CFAX end story for about four years now and like, it just like it it. really it's like but finally that's but it But isn't it's interesting. Interesting.
3: it I mean it's just sort of died and there hasn't been any great fuss nobody's sort of saying I can't get television it's just kind of been well today to Prager might not have covered it but the, you yeah. know
2: The Guardian did Maggie yeah <laughs> piece by John Plunkett. Uh, anyway, I
3: read it. Now you remind me. <laughs> I hope you've memorised it. Maggie. You have to understand, I'm still trying to catch up on my sleep.
2: <laughs> of course, Maggie. That was entirely unfair. I'm sorry about that. And because of that, I think Maggie wins 2-1. What? Uh, that's Ma-
3: outrageous. <laughs> <laughs> Ma- <Hurray. laughs> no, actually, that is a bit unfair Vicky.
2: So that's it for this week. My thanks to Maggie Brown and to Vicky Frost and to Dan Saba. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our Facebook page or our blog. Or if you fancy, you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening.
0: For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.